So welcome back, everybody, to Brubble. My name is Simon, and this podcast is a mild to deep dive into a unique EU policy issue from the perspective of young people in and around the Brussels bubble. Today, we're going to be talking about EU enlargement. The Russian war of aggression in Ukraine has been a dominant topic driving discourse in and around the EU this year. And one of the topics that thrust back in the spotlight was EU enlargement, particularly for Ukraine and other Eastern European states. But what does enlargement really mean? How does this impact the EU we know and love? And most importantly, what do we make of Ukraine's application? So joining me today to take a look at this issue is Indra. Indra, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Simon? I'm good. You came in slightly wet. And that is intimidating for me because I bike to work today. <laughs> well, it's Brussels. <laughs> what can I say? I know, November I'm... in Brussels. Yeah, and I'm kind of, as somebody who grew up in Canada, I'm almost annoyed it's not snow because at least that looks sometimes a bit more pretty. But I agree. Coming from Lithuania would take snow <laughs> over rain any day, honestly. Yeah, especially the other night. I got completely soaked coming back from my French lessons, which is, again, a very Brusseltonian thing to say. Oh, yes. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, well... Indra, you've been in Brussels a little while. Can you tell the people who you are, what you do in life, how you find yourself in this beautiful yet rainy city? Yeah, sure. So I'm Indra. I have a background in EU foreign policy, and I'm currently working as the communications coordinator at Carnegie Europe. Uh, that is a think tank on EU foreign policy and security, and it's part of the larger Carnegie Endowment for International Peace with the headquarters in Washington, D.C., uh, maybe just a quick disclaimer as well before we kick off. Anything I say in this podcast is going to be my personal views and not the views of the Carnegie Endowment or Carnegie Europe. So I've been in Brussels since 2019, but I actually first came here in 2016 to do a couple traineeships here in Brussels as part of my bachelor's degree. So I studied international relations and politics at the University of Bath. And I came to Brussels to do a traineeship at the Council of the EU, where I actually worked in the enlargement unit of the DG in, on foreign policy, and to do another traineeship at the permanent representation of Lithuania to the EU. And I left Brussels with the determination to come back. So I did come back to Belgium, but uh, more specifically to Bruges to do my master's in 2018 in EU foreign policy. And since then, I've been working at think tanks. So I was previously at Friends of Europe in working in communications and am now, as I mentioned, at Carnegie Europe working in comms. Cool, cool. And throughout this entire, I guess, mind-enlarging journey of your academic career, I feel like EU enlargement has been quite the theme, right? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, uh, so as I mentioned, when I was doing my traineeship at the council, I was working in the enlargement unit and dealing specifically with Eastern Europe and Russia. So that's kind of where I first, uh, you know, found my passion for, for EU enlargement and, of course, learned a lot about it at university and went even, even deeper into it at, uh, during my master's program. So it's definitely been an issue I'm very interested in and have been following. And since, obviously, since Russia's invasion of the 24th of February, I've been following all things Ukraine, including Ukraine's succession process. Yeah, and it is quite interesting how when we look at that moment of the Russians' war in Ukraine, that it really thrust that issue right back in the spotlight. Because I remember within like a day or two of, of, of the first like Russian boots on Ukrainian soil, that issue was again dominating throughout, I guess, the halls here, so to say. And it's quite 
it, it kind of emphasized to me how important enlargement was. And I mean, the last 10 years or so, it's, I mean, the Balkans are making noise about it, especially ones who haven't had their turn yet, so to say. But it, it does emphasize to me how important this concept is for our union. So what do you think about, I mean, personally, maybe even, what do you think about the importance of enlargement as a process for a healthy, vibrant body of nations? Yeah, I mean, you said it, Simon, it, it is extremely important. In fact, I think it's an of existential importance to the EU because in the end, enlargement is how the EU became what it is today. Yeah. You know, what started out with six members, so originally France, Germany, Italy, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, um, became a 27-member organization. Not so long ago, it was 28, as you know, before Brexit. So it is, you know, at the heart of um, of the EU. And, you know, it's quite widely agreed that enlargement is the EU's most successful foreign policy uh, tool. And enlargement, to me, is, uh, is not just the process by which countries join the EU, by which, yeah. you know, EU territory expands, but it's really also about the EU's, you know, transformative power and its ability to externalize or export, if you like, its norms and values. So it is really a testament to its, you know, normative power. Uh, the concept has come up in, in academia. Yeah, its ability to, to externalize its, its values and norms to its neighbors. Yeah, and I would kind of argue too, a little bit going off, I think it's also important for self-reflection for the European Union, which we don't see talked about enough when we talk about enlargement, because it is reflecting on what we mean as a union and what that means going forward and kind of how these processes can accept different, you know, stances and viewpoints coming in and creating a stronger place. But I think we'll get into that a little bit later. Definitely. <laughs> but uh, I guess on this note, if you haven't noticed already, we're going to be talking about EU enlargement for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. And to start this off, Indra, we need to know what enlargement looks like or EU enlargement. What does it entail? What is like the, the two minute little, you know, uh, spark notes version of enlargement that everybody should know? Sure. Well, so Article 49 of the Treaty on the European Union says that any European state can apply to the EU if it respects common values and is committed to promoting them. But this process is not as straightforward as, as it might, might seem from, uh, yeah. from this article. So I think, uh, importantly, conditionality is central to the EU's um, enlargement policy. And to join the EU, a country must meet certain political and economic criteria, which are called the Copenhagen criteria. They're yeah. called that way because they were agreed upon in Copenhagen at a European Council in 1993. So these criteria include, you know, stable institutions that can guarantee democracy, rule of law, human rights, and the protection of minorities. They also include a functioning market economy and the ability to cope with uh, competitive pressures and market forces inside the EU. And the country needs to have the administrative capacity to implement what is called the acquis communautaire. Mm -hmm. uh, this is essentially a collection of the laws, rights and obligations that bind all EU member states. And this process of implementing this acquis takes a while. Yeah. It can take years, so and has normally taken years. So it is a very lengthy and stringent process. And of course, first, the country becomes a candidate state. It's only after all EU member states agree unanimously that they will open negotiations with that country that, you know, accession talks can start. And then, you know, there's a whole screening process by the commission where it assesses the readiness of, uh, of this member state in different EU policy areas. 
then they open up different chapters, which are more or less, uh, which more or less relate to the different policy areas and the, the acquis communautaire. And it is only once all those chapters in different policy areas, from transport to agriculture to you know the environment and monetary policy, are agreed to, that an accession treaty can be drawn up. And so once the accession treaty is drawn up, it needs to be ratified by all EU member states, which is another lengthy yeah. process. <laughs> so all in all, it is a very complex, lengthy process that really takes years. Yeah, I, I think the the go-to example is like Estonia, I think, because they had, I think, almost exactly 10-year process to get in. And they were coming from a pretty ambitious starting point. So, And I, I think that's one of the critiques in a sense, right? Because you mentioned yourself too. It's pretty slow, but on the other hand, you want to be rigorous when accepting a new member state. Do you agree with the slowness of the process, or do you think there's, again, like I say, that rigor is really needed? Well, I think, you know, the EU is, of course, bureaucratic. And as I said, the <laughs> acquis, true. it is very true, <laughs> everyone knows it. The acquis is massive, and as I said, the ratification can take ages. So. Yeah. There is simply no way around some of these things. Mm -hmm. And I think it is, of course, very important for the EU to have, you know, strict criteria for member states to join. So I would say, yes, you know, it's true. The process is slow. I don't know if there is any way around it. But then, you know, if we look at the Balkans, for example, I think the EU has definitely lacked, uh, you know, commitment and engagement. So there, you know, you could definitely argue that more could be done and should be done. Uh, The EU does need to engage more politically with, you know, the countries that are showing uh, a willingness to, at some point, join the EU. Yeah, because I think it's, it must feel so terrible for these countries who are really putting themselves out on the line and then just being, like, weightless indefinitely. I mean, I don't know if people who follow the podcast know what I'm I have my EU passport, but I'm also waiting on my Canadian passport. And that's been going on for a year, and I'm quite annoyed at that. So wow. <laughs> I definitely feel I hope that. it comes in soon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it'll come in before there's a new EU country. That's yes, all I'm going to say. I think that's a, that's a safe <laughs> bet, Simon. <laughs> there we go. But talking about new EU countries or old new EU countries, states, members, whatever you want to call them, are there any successful examples you want to spotlight and, like, what they did well? Because I remember... I was thinking about this because the other week I went to the Moldovan embassy where they had a talk on, you know, Moldovan accession and what they were doing. And they mentioned they were learning a lot of lessons and looking at, you know, like Croatia, what they did successfully in other countries. So I was wondering if there's any examples that you might want to share about what it what you should do if you want to get accepted to the EU. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the enlargement process in general, since, you know, the first enlargement wave has been as I mentioned, the most successful and impactful EU foreign policy tool. But I wouldn't want to classify enlargement rounds as successful or unsuccessful. But I might be biased, but I think the 2004 sort of big bang enlargement uh, does stand out. I think that was a very important step because 10 states joined the EU, including my own, Lithuania. So it was the Baltics, Poland, and several others. you know, these were countries, the Baltics had just gained, regained independence around 1990, and they wanted to really consolidate their democracies and join this Western democratic family of, of members. So I think, you know, a large part of the success of this, this big enlargement was specifically the, the membership reward, mm. because 
you know, the, the reform process is, a, as I said, a very lengthy, complex process. And uh, if there is a clear end goal, you know, member the, the candidate countries are so much more motivated to get these reforms done. So I think a large part of success is, is due to the fact that the EU was wanting to take in these, these new states. Of course, you know, with time, it has gotten more and more difficult to get member states to agree on whether <laughs> enlargement is really a good idea. Or anything in general. So. Or anything <laughs> in general. So with that in mind, it becomes more difficult for candidate countries or countries that want to become candidate countries and eventually full-fledged members um, to find yeah, motivation to, to implement all these difficult reforms. Yeah, this is a good point. I think a lot of countries just don't realize, in a sense, the cost of what it takes. And then also just how exclusionary a, a union like the European Union needs to be to ensure, I guess, stability for its inner 27 members. Definitely. I want to point out a funny note that I noticed while I was, I was doing my you know, background research on this topic. Did you know Morocco applied in 1987? So really? That, apparently a non-European country can apply. So there, it's funny how there's no limits. I was thinking of this because there was this weird story in the news of Serbia getting support from Indonesia to support Asians. I was like, are there really any limits to what you can do? Is, are there, is does geography even matter? But uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> I think it's just a funny note. <laughs> I was not mention. aware. Yeah, my other cool thing. I'm just gonna point out in the middle of the episode. You know, put in my little fun facts here. But my other cool thing I noticed is that Iceland has an application out too, but yeah. it is frozen, which I thought was ironic. Indeed. So, yes. Yes, uh, frozen, Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, moving on from that to a bit more of a, I guess, heavy subject. To have your question here is the Russian war of aggression in Ukraine, uh, which we mentioned earlier was the catalyst to really seeing the applications of Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia being, you know, reconsidered in a new light with Ukraine and Moldo- Moldova since being granted candidate status by Europe. So I wanted to take a few minutes to really focus in on Ukraine in particular and use them as a bit of a case study. What do we think will come of this? How do we think this will go? And to do that, I think we need to introduce a little bit of history first. In the beginning, I think on the 28th, just days after the invasion began, Zelensky uh, submitted Ukraine's application. And only four months later, at the June European Council, Ukraine and their partner Moldova were both granted candidates, which is an unprecedented amount of speed. But it does, I think... As a European, it does reflect well, I guess, some kind of like soft power diplomacy we have, which I think is a good action. And I kind of want to throw it at you. How do you think Russia's war has impacted EU's approach to enlargement within this arena? Well, Simon, I'd say it's made a huge difference. It's really, you know, brought the urgency uh, back to this topic. It's really brought enlargement back to the top of the EU's agenda. And of course, the circumstances are, are devastating, but it has, you know, woken up a lot of EU member states, and I think, you know, changed uh, changed a bit of the calculus because there were quite a few member states that were skeptical of granting Ukraine even a candidate status. I mean, this was not really a discussion before the invasion, and right now, with this full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Russia has really, you know, compromised the major argument that member states that were skeptical were putting forward, which is that we're afraid of provoking Russia, Mm. who obviously sees Ukraine's democratic, you know, development and uh, the perspective of a new membership as a threat. 
So this argument no longer stands. And I think that's partly why we saw this unprecedented decision to so quickly agree amongst all all 27 member states that Ukraine does deserve the candidate status and Moldova, of course, as well. Yeah, I, I think just the fact we came together and agreed that this is a good step to take forward, given we hadn't done anything basically on the on the enlargement process in the past seven, eight years. Well, I would say it's a little unfair to say that you was not doing anything before the 24th of February. Okay. It was engaging with and investing in Ukraine, as well as Georgia and Moldova, you know, in the framework of this Eastern Partnership Initiative that it has. And Ukraine and the EU, let's not forget, signed an association agreement and a DCFTA in 2014, which Ukraine has already been working to implement and has implemented large parts of. So Ukraine is not starting from scratch and the EU and Ukraine are not starting from scratch to work on this, you know, perspective of Ukraine to join the EU. But definitely, I would say the step of granting Ukraine candidate status would not have been possible, at least in the you know near foreseeable future, uh, if Russia hadn't invaded on the 24th of February. Yeah, that's a good point, though, because I knew there were some measures in place. But it was, it was still like, I feel like if you ask somebody in 2021 if Ukraine would even be at this point in 2025, they would have said no way. And it is interesting how this crisis kind of thrusts the momentum forward. And in the terms of thrusting it forward, do you think that the right boxes are being checked for them to become to being elevated to a candidate status? Well, I think we need to approach this issue cautiously, right? Because let's remember that candidate status is not a guarantee of membership anytime soon. This is an important symbolic step that the EU has taken, a very significant step and, in my eyes, a very welcome and a needed step. But that said, you know, Ukraine has a long way to go to be able to join the EU, to, to tick all the boxes, to meet the Copenhagen criteria. They have been working on these reforms, as I said, since, you know, 2014, but there's still a long way to go. And as I mentioned, for countries, you know, who are not at war, this was a, a massive thing. Reforms are not easy. And for a country who is, you know, under attack and is trying to fight back an enemy, this is even more difficult. So I think it's still early days. I think candidate status was a much needed step. And, you know, it will probably, it will definitely take years until Ukraine can join. But this was important to do at this moment in time. Yeah. No, it's a good point because a a lot of rhetoric from the opponents of this uh, coming out around the time the candidate status was granted was, Ukraine is simply not ready. The EU is going is going too harsh, is going too strong on this policy. Do you want to enlighten us a little bit on what some of these criticisms were that people have about the Ukrainian candidate status or even the UK, Ukrainian application to the EU and whether you think they hold any weight? Well, you know, I think Ukraine, of course, has its problems. It uh, has a lot of, you know, social political structures it needs to work on in order to to be ready for for EU membership. But it's not just related to the EU. I think this ties into the broader the broader topic of EU enlargement fatigue. Mm-hmm. You know, we've heard criticisms about the 2004 and 2007 enlargements in particular, where, you know, many argued that 
these enlargement rounds were carried out too hastily and without adequate preparation, especially in the cases of Romania and Bulgaria. So these two countries have actually been subject to what is called the Cooperation and Verification Mechanism, the CVM, which is an instrument for the EU to ensure the sustainability of reforms that they had made in order to join the EU. This relates to their issues of judicial reforms and anti-corruption measures. And of course, then the very worrying developments we've been seeing in Hungary and Poland also relate to this. So these two countries joined in 2004, and you know we've seen in the past years the dismantlement of the rule of law and issues with judicial independence, with repression of media freedoms and civil society, including you know attacks on LGBTQI, minorities, migrants. So this is all you know food for thought. A lot of uh, you know a lot of people would argue that this shows democratic reforms are reversible to some extent. And, you know, the EU has had to launch proceedings under Article 7, and it has triggered the so-called budget conditionality mechanism this year in April against Hungary. Um, Tomorrow is actually the deadline for Hungary to implement these 17 remedial measures the Commission has asked them to or the EU will consider suspending 7.5 billion euros from the cohesion funds that Hungary was normally meant to receive. So, you know, I'm sure you've seen these things in in headlines, and this points to issues within the EU for many people that, you know, the EU will not be able to focus on as much if it shifts its attention to absorbing even more new member states. So these issues we're seeing in Hungary and in Poland, as well as, you know, other crises that EU has gone through lately, starting with the financial crisis of 2008, with the wave of uh, migrants in 2015, and then Brexit and COVID, we are dealing with a lot at the moment internally inside the EU. And there is a certain fear that if the EU shifts its attention to, you know, enlargement once again, without first solving its internal problems and, you know, consolidating integration internally, that, you know, the EU will not end up in a good place, that this is not the right step at the moment. It's a very good point that I find, because I think that really relates into a lot of, like, the internal EU reforms that we've been seeing going around, too, um, with, uh, you know, reforming how the EU works internally. Because I was reading about this earlier, and if I was, it was a good point to mention is that within the EU Council, they have a qualified majority voting system for certain elements. And together, Ukraine, which has five, which would now be the fifth largest member in the, Europe, in the European Union, together with Poland, Ukraine and Poland, form a voting bloc as powerful as Germany within the EU Council setup, which is quite the existential crisis for like the German-French pivot, which has kind of been guiding the, right. the decisions within the Euro- European Council for a long time. Yeah, I mean, it would be quite a change. And again, I think it's still early days to talk about, you know, how things will be once Ukraine is actually of in course. the EU. But one thing that's for sure is that, you know, EU decision-making, particularly on foreign policy issues, will become more difficult. And we've seen that with, you know, consecutive EU enlargement rounds, the more countries are at the table, the more difficult it is to decide on things. And in you know the common foreign and security policy, 
the rule is unanimity. So to come to any kind of decision, you need all governments on board, which will become more difficult the more member states there are. Yeah, no, very good point. Because it just makes me reflect using my European roots in a sense where I, I think we do need to promote that stronger European identity, loop that into, you know, our enlarging borders. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say it's there are difficulties because of the different histories and you know, strategic cultures and priorities of the member states. And this is normal, you know, what Lithuania cares about will not necessarily be what Portugal prioritizes. And, you know, this is a reality we have to live with. But of course, I think in it's important that in situations like these, where we see our neighbor, you know, a European country being attacked by an invader, that we come together and agree on things like granting candidate yeah. status. No, and I, I think even, sure, people say it's a symbolic move, but I think it's much more than a symbolic move because symbolic moves in themselves have weight, especially at this level. Definitely. Not everybody is a candidate to the EU. Definitely. Which, yeah. I think to wrap this up, Indra, what do you think should happen to the Ukraine application? And I'm going to make a differentiation here. What do you think will happen to the Ukraine application? So I wouldn't want to speculate, really, I think history points to a long winding road ahead for Ukraine's uh, membership, for Ukraine's path to membership. And, you know, that's okay. Ukraine knows President Zelensky is aware that this is a difficult and complex process. And they are willing to stick through it and to implement these reforms. And the most important thing I think right now is for the EU to support Ukraine, first of all, militarily, to ensure it wins this war, and then to help, you know, reconstruct the country and assist it on its path to the EU to help it implement the reforms that it needs to implement in order to be able to join. I hope and I think this will happen. It will take some time, but I am confident that it can happen one day. Yeah, I think that's an optimistic note to leave it on, because I share your optimism in this sense. I think that Public opinion has never been, I think, as much in the past 20 years on the side of accepting an EU candidate into the EU as of Ukraine right now. And I think that's a very important thing. Definitely. I think one of the arguments of countries that were skeptical of giving Ukraine a membership perspective also argued that the public is not very keen to further expand the EU And I think you're right. In the case of Ukraine, this has changed. Russia's latest invasion has made a huge difference in terms of societal support for Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's a good way to leave it off here. (laughs) So, Indra, I think we've had a pretty interesting substantive discussion. We've covered a lot of the grounds. But uh, before we, uh, you know, end up, I like to ask sometimes, occasionally, a bit more of a personal question, you know, you know, more fun question, less serious in a sense. So you mentioned you're Lithuanian, right? Yes. If your country could join any international union, which you're not currently part of, what would you join? Well. <laughs> so I, what I'm thinking of is like Australia is somehow part of, um, oh, what's that, of, of Eurovision, right? Yes. 
And that always blows my mind as somebody who understands what Euro means and I understand what singing competitions mean, but I don't understand what Australia means here. So is there anything like that that, you know, Lithuania would be particularly well suited to be within? Uh, you know what? I think we're perfectly happy to be in the EU, <laughs> in NATO and participating in Eurovision. So there you go. Okay, fair enough. You don't want to join the Commonwealth Games, you know? Actually win some Olympic medals? No? No? Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're okay. I think we're good. Nah. Okay, that's fair enough. Well, I think we'll wrap it up on this note. Is there any final words you want to leave the audience with before we say goodbye? Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Simon. And maybe I just encourage your listeners to also check out Carnegie Europe's work. Our scholars do a lot of work on, you know, Ukraine, Russia, enlargement issues. Richard Youngs has written a lot about Ukraine's future accession prospects and the enlargement process more broadly. Dimitar Bechev works on the Western Balkans and has a lot of good good stuff on that. So check out Carnegie Europe and follow it on Twitter. And follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Indra underscore K-R-I. Of course, and I'll, I'll include that in the description below because I am terrible at spelling stuff. So <laughs> you can also find my Twitter there. And if the platform is still operating by the time this comes out, so we might be too you know, ahead of ourselves here. That's true. That's something to keep an eye on. <laughs> so on that optimistic note, I guess we're wrapping up now and I'll catch you all next week. So goodbye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for having me.